0: Hello, and welcome to the Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Canadian Story. We're joined once again by Senator Housakis. Senator, welcome to the show. Great to be back with you, David. So uh, since we had our last appearance with you in the first uh, year of this podcast, uh, you've done a lot. You were the chair of Pierre Polyev's campaign to become leader. So you were on the front lines of the largest, as far as I'm aware, leadership campaign in Canadian history with the most votes. Uh, I know our listeners would love to, to know what was that like to be a part of something that huge?
1: It was fantastic. Uh, it was a great experience. I mean, obviously, the results uh, that Mr. Poliev uh, garnered garnered uh, also are unprecedented. A strong mandate from Conservatives from coast to coast. Uh, I was uh, very excited at the beginning of that leadership with the prospects of uniting the Conservative family. Uh, and that's what was achieved by the end of uh, the exercise. I think uh, the Federal Conservative Party of Canada is more united today than it ever has been. Uh, and it has injected some hope for those of us in this country over the last seven and a half years that are starting to lose hope in the, in where the country's going.
0: So I was at a couple of the rallies in Alberta. Uh, I don't know if Zach made it to any, but I was. Imagine you went to a bunch. You've been to Harper rallies. You've been to rallies, political rallies for a very long time. What would you describe as the difference between these ones and previous rallies that you've kind of been at?
1: Well, David, as you know, and you're very kind to say, I've been around for a very long time. (laughs) It just points out and highlights how old I am, but uh, I've been involved in the conservative movement and party for over 35 years. So that gives a little bit of a hint of of exactly how old I am. And you're absolutely right. I've been involved way back in 1983 in the leadership race at that time and through a number of battles. uh, I have never seen the movement be so uh overwhelming as it is right now where canadians are expressing themselves so clearly uh, about the need for change
0: yeah it was uh, the spirit in the room was very interesting right because sometimes you go to political rallies the people are excited to meet a famous person or they just want to be around that person what i found is that he was and i said this to him when i saw him at, at the uh, rally in calgary this is not just a leadership race. It literally is a movement. He's he's captured the zeitgeist quite well.
1: No, you're absolutely right. Uh we've all experienced that people show up to these events because they're ideological long-time loyal conservatives uh, or because they want to be in a photo with somebody who's in the news, but you're absolutely right. This time around, uh we drew crowds from demographics we've never done before successfully, starting with the youth. Uh, we were starting to see for the first time in my lifetime, a conservative federal party drawing strength amongst young voters. Uh, and that was the thing that struck me the most. I, Myself and my other national poll campaign chairs will love to take credit about how brilliant and how smart we were. And we ran a fantastic campaign and we'll do all of that as well. But the truth of the matter is what was completely unexpected is the manifestation of young Canadians and their, their frustration with a bill of goods that were were not respected by Justin Trudeau. Because a lot of these voters, let's be clear, all these young people that came out to the poly of rally after rally from Halifax to British Columbia, these are people that have only voted liberal since 2015. These are people between the ages of 22 and 35 that were coming out. So obviously in 2015 and 2019 and 2021, they voted for Justin Trudeau. And they are the most frustrated, most let down Canadians, and they were coming out, and and clearly they see Pierre Polyev as as their hope, as somebody who can uh, change the tide here and change the direction of the country, and as I, as do I, and and I am sure and confident that he will rise to that uh, to that mandate.
2: How is? Yeah, he, he's.
0: Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Zach.
2: Sorry, I just want to jump in here because I have a question. How is? the temperature of those voters and and those people and and the temperature of the people who were coming to those rallies overall how does that compare um to the temperature that you would have observed in the room 10 15 years ago this feels like a very important time for canada where we're kind of figuring out where we want to go next and and um i believe that it is always important to be engaged and involved in where your country is headed, but there are more people now engaged and involved. And I feel like the the temperature is different. Can you compare and contrast the two? Well, look,
1: there, there, I have never seen anything like this in my lifetime. Uh, and And those of us that are in public, you know, public life. Uh, we do this in order to to build for the future and it's all about young people. Uh, if I'm putting in the sacrifice, the time and effort I'm doing in public life, it's for my children, it's for my grandchildren and to leave a Canada better off in 10 15 20 years than the Canada I received and let me tell you my generation received a fantastic canada uh, a great canada uh, and we're 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 not making it better unfortunately over the last decade uh, we've seen young people not being able to afford Homes. We see people that are having difficulty starting a family, uh, buying a car, getting a getting a new uniform or suit to start their career because they're just too expensive. And then when they start their career, they realize that their paycheck is growing in terms of numbers and zeros at the end of it, but the cost of living is making it impossible for them to feed their children, to put shoes on their kids, to to pay for some of the necessities to heat their homes and so on and so forth. So uh, you see the frustration, the pain uh, in every single rally that Pierre Polyev did in every single event and meeting we had. I did some on secondary tour as well. Uh, and, and you felt the pain of, of young people, of mothers coming out to our events and saying, they're worried for their children, they're worried for their grandchildren because they have never seen It's so difficult and so expensive for somebody to to launch their life. So the temperature is at levels we've never seen before uh, because government spending are at levels we've never seen before. The debt in this country is at levels we've never seen before. The deficit is at levels we've never seen before. Taxpayers are paying more than ever before. And for reasons difficult to understand, governments are providing less services than ever before, which makes no sense, right? We're all in business, uh, and in, um, in our life, we understand if we spend more, it's reasonable to expect more in return.
0: And it's interesting that uh, that you raise that people can't afford houses. and uh, And I think that is probably the number one issue that young people are upset about, at least in my generation, kind of the, I would say 25 to 35 range what what is it about what the liberals have done that has made things so unaffordable like just to explain it to people so they fully understand that there really it is liberal policies that is are driving these increases in housing prices because some people claim oh the, the government can't do anything about it it's just the market but i know that's not true you know that's not true how would you explain that to people
1: liberals are masters at excuses so they're going to blame what's going on in ukraine which is difficult for me to understand what's going on in ukraine is having an impact in in heating costs in british columbia or montreal there's it's completely asinine to make these arguments. It's classic liberal to say, well, I know inflation is at a historic 30-year high, but it's the same in other countries. So it's like this this government continues to make excuses rather than take action. Now, why is the cost of living where it is? It's very simple. We have a government that has printed money at levels we have never seen before. And they have not learned from previous governments and previous experiences. Justin Trudeau should have learned from his own father's experience when he was prime minister. When governments spend money they don't have, they print money they don't have because they're not preoccupied by monetary policy. And that's not my words. That's Prime Minister Trudeau in the last campaign saying that monetary policy is not something he worries about. Well, clearly now when we see the results We see why we have what we have as as a disaster, a 30-year high in interest rates. Um, And and again, I I appreciate the argument that Mr. Trudeau and Minister Freeland made for a number of years, which is, well, interest rates are low. We have nothing to worry about. Uh, We're going to outperform. Our economy is going to outgrow our deficit and outgrow our spending, which is, again, such an asinine philosophy in terms of economic and monetary policy, and we've seen time and time again over many decades when it's been tried, it fails. So why do they believe if they do this, they're going to get a different result of the other 100% of the times where it hasn't worked? It's difficult to understand. So when you have too much too much money chasing too few goods, it creates a, a, a bubble, and it creates inflation. And after inflation starts, invariably, you need to raise interest rates in order to be to be able to curb it back. Now we're just at the beginning stages of interest rate interest rate hikes. We've seen nothing yet. People think that because now we've gone from three percent and three and a half percent, to five point seven percent. This is terrible. Wait, when it gets to eight or nine or ten percent over the next few months. And I know people think that I'm a uh, I'm being overly pessimistic and this is a a, a doomsday prediction. But when you have inflation rates at 7% and 8% and 9% and 15% in certain countries, in Western democracies, believe it or not, there's no other way to curb it. We are eventually going to pay the piper for all the overkill spending that this government did during the COVID crisis, which some of us predicted at the time. Uh, It was overkill. And, And as every month goes by now, we're starting to realize that the Trudeau government mismanaged Uh, And overstepped their bounds when it came to dealing with that existential crisis at the time. And it has created a greater existential crisis right now in what will be the worst recession, in my opinion, in the history of our country.
2: So to clarify, because this is shocking, it is your belief that in Canada we are going to see interest rates of 8 to 10 percent within months of today?
1: I really believe that. Uh if you go back and we have to learn from history. We remember from the previous Trudeau government which had a very similar approach to economics as uh, as his son Justin Trudeau has today. It resulted in the early 1980s uh in the the worst recession of of the history of the country and and I think Justin is going to outdo his dad, it resulted in 18, 19% interest rates back in 1980, 81, 82. Many Canadians are too young to remember that. I'm starting to be old enough to remember that. And I remember the catastrophe that it it brought on the lives of middle class and poor Canadians, people having to return the keys to their bankers, the keys to their cars, their keys to their homes. Uh, It was a terrible period of time. And people also forget it took almost two and a half decades to clean up the mess of the previous Trudeau liberal government. It really, it, it took a decade of a, of a conservative government under Brian Mulroney. And then the truth of the matter is, we saw even during the Christian um, uh, martin era, they were handcuffed in terms of fiscal public spending uh, because of what happened in the 1970s. At the time, if we remember in the 90s, and martin were obligated to slash social programs The biggest slashes and cuts in social programs we experienced in this country was in the 1990s by a liberal government, not because of ideological reasons or because all of a sudden they really wanted to be fiscally responsible. It's because there was no money left from the inflationary policies of the 1970s. And through hard work of the previous Harper government, a decade of fiscal responsibility, of proper monetary fiscal policy. We balanced the budget in 2015, despite the fact that Mr. Harper had to stick, handle the country through another terrible recession in 2007 and 2008, a truly international recession, which hardly touched Canada. We were hardly scathed by that compared to the United States, Western Europe and other economies. And it was done because of a responsible fiscal government. And what do we get? We get in 2015 somebody that said, hey, we're on a hall pass. You know, we got dad's credit card. And Mr. Trudeau won an election in 2015 telling Canadians, oh, don't believe Mr. Harper. It's an exaggeration. He over-tightened the belt. And, and, and what a mean guy he was. And, and we, we you know, our debt-to-GDP ratio is fantastic. I remember Trudeau using that line all the time. Yes, it was fantastic, our GDP-to-debt ratio, because we had a responsible Harper government over a decade making sure. We had the best debt to GDP ratio in the world, which, by the way, has been slipping every year since 2015 because Mr. Trudeau has not had a single fiscal year where he didn't run a deficit. So you try in your own households every single year living off your line of credit. Bringing in fifty thousand dollars a year, for argument's sake, or sixty thousand dollars a year, and spend seventy five thousand dollars a year. Do that for eight years and see what happens. <laughs> well,
2: yeah, really I don't easy. know if most people will be able to make it P- eight years. You don't,
1: David. You don't need a or Zach. You don't need a Ph.D. in economics to do that, right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, here, so do here we you are. believe? Do you believe what Canada is about to face in terms of recession? Um, will be worse than what Canada faced in 07 and 08.
1: Yes, uh I really do for the following reasons. Um and it's very complicated, but um number one our our debt is at a historic high, 1.6 trillion plus and growing every day. Canada's economic output annually is barely that in total. Our our um Productivity rate in this country is at the lowest it's ever been in our history. We also have one of the lowest productivity rates in the OECD. This has been statistically proven. And and what this government did during COVID with the mandates only exasperated that particular problem. And now we see in government, we see in the private sector, uh, a challenge to get Canadians back to work. They're in a mindset of shutdown. And that shutdown was prematurely instituted by this government, uh, and the 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 impact it has had on the economy and productivity is outrageous. The other element is this government has spent frivolously money in areas where it shouldn't. Like you you run up a 1.6 plus trillion dollar debt, and our infrastructure, which is so essential in regenerating economic growth, has been neglected we see what's going on in our airports, what's going on in our ports, what's going on with our rail system, what's going on with our highways, our bridges. Um, We hear from all stakeholders across the country that our economic infrastructure has not been uh, regenerated and invested in effectively. So again, the question bears to be asked, you just spent over a trillion dollars in a matter of a short period of time. I'm going to simplify it again. Imagine in your household, all of a sudden you own an average home of three or four hundred thousand dollars, and you go to the bank and you borrow three hundred thousand dollars to renovate the home, to expand the home, and so on and so forth. And at the end of that process, come spring, there's leaks in your roof, your furnace isn't working, the driveway is full of holes. This is just so we get a clear understanding. This is what has happened in Canada. Show me if our productivity is up, if our infrastructure is ready for economic growth. Show me uh, that our passport offices are working well so businesses and people can travel. Our airports are efficient. Our our ports right now are, are saying everything is hunky-dory. We don't need any more investment. We're ready for the economic explosion that should be coming after COVID. None of that. but. We have a bill to pick up for money where, where, and again, I want to highlight for our viewers, the budget officer and the Auditor General, the Auditor General of Canada did a quick, not a forensic audit, a quick overview of COVID uh, aid measures during the COVID crisis. And she discovered $37.5 billion of inappropriate spending. That's just the tip of the ice. Thirty-seven point five billion. We're not talking about a few million dollars, which is, even that's not excusable in government. We're talking about thirty-seven point five billion dollars—enormous amount of money that there's no accountability for. And liberals- why do you think
0: so many Canadians, like, why have so many Canadians not like risen up in anger over this? The Gomery inquiry was over three hundred million, wasn't it? Exactly. Exactly, David. Well.
1: It- that's, a, you know, that's an interesting question. And the only thing I can think of, the liberals have been masters at uh, perpetuating, myth, you know, mythology. They're fantastic storytellers. They're fantastic at talking points. I think it was at this summit now in Mexico, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, at one scrum talked about how the world is, is facing dangers of authoritarianism and the high rise of cost of living. And I'm shaking my head and I tweeted about it this morning. What's this guy talking about? Number one, his government has taken zero action to combat authoritarianism around the world. On the contrary, we've seen measures he's taken in this country that are totalitarian and authoritarian in nature. Furthermore, he has been the catalyst. For increasing cost of living in the country, yet he goes in front of a microphone. He does a scrum. He looks right in the eyes of his friends in the mainstream media and he perpetuates this nonsense with very little pushback. Though, to your question, David, I have to say, I, I'm holding a little bit of hope because in the first, this is the first time in his year end interviews uh, this past Christmas, it's the first time. That we saw a couple of uh, legacy broadcasting journalists start asking him a little bit of the tough questions and starting to hold him to account, and I believe that's simply being that's simply occurring right now because even the the traditional mainstream media is starting to be embarrassed by this guy and all the uh, buffering and shielding and supporting uh, that they've been offering him. Uh, and I would—I'd like to say free of charge the last seven and a half years—but actually, the, our taxpayers have been paying uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to mainstream media for him to be um, propped up, despite his incompetence, his corruption, and his ideological um, corruption. So,
0: um, so let's let's actually. This is a really good segue into the question about two things. One, you were at the front lines on the Emergency Act battle which uh, I know our listeners are very interested in and you were in the Senate fighting it uh, up until they actually ended up canceling it, obviously. Uh, I'd like your perspective on that. What was that like? That's a crazy time in Canada. It's probably going to be remembered for the rest of our lives. I I have no doubt. Uh, It's been mirrored around the world. It was in some, some camps celebrated as like one of the greatest moments in Canadian history and others, it's, you know, an occupation, but, what was that like to be watching an emergency act be declared on protesters in Ottawa while you were there?
1: It was at first shocking, then it was horrifying. Uh, shocking in the sense that I never thought in my lifetime I would see a government effectively try to institute the War Measures Act. We call it, of course, the Emergency Act, but again... I'm old enough to have been a student of the War Measures Act, which was again ironically implemented for the first time in this country uh, by uh, Pierre Elliott. It must be a family thing. They must like to <laughs> trample on freedom, democracy, and human rights. I don't I don't know how else to justify it. So um, I found myself as a parliamentarian, as a as a senator, debating a measure that was completely outrageous, a shameful time in our history. Canada was uh, lambasted around the world for this poor judgment on the part of the government. And it's unfortunate that it's not a question of poor judgment. I'm convinced that it was done deliberately in order to divide and wedge Canadians, some genius in the prime minister's office read some poll that showed that 70 percent of Canadians were vaccinated, 30 percent were not. Oh, all right. So we're going to say it's 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 us versus them. It always, you know, the old classic wedge political approach, which is, again, horrifying. As a parliamentarian, we should be uniting this diverse country. We should be creating a, a homogeneous sense of existence and cause and, and ambition, not dividing Canadians. Um, so, thank God there were a, a few conservative senators still left in the, in, in the upper chamber, uh, because the truth of the matter is there were the vast majority of Trudeau-appointed senators supported this draconian measure. Um and it's ironic uh, that, and again, I don't want to toot the horn of, of my colleagues uh, in, in the in the very small conservative caucus that we have, but after we put up a hell of a fight uh, in the chamber, and while the fight was going on that same afternoon, uh, Justin Trudeau called a, a press conference in haste and pulled the Emergency Measures Act. By then it was too late, pulled it. I mean, he would, you know, <laughs> he pulled the plug after he saw that, Common sense Canadians were standing up. Many vaccinated Canadians who he miscalculated got up on their feet and said, wait a second, you can't take away the right from a Canadian to decide not to inject themselves with a medical with a medication or take a medical procedure. I mean, the same government that rips their shirt in indignation about the right of a woman to choose to terminate the life of a of a a fetus. That same government had no hesitation in tying somebody to a bed, strapping him down, and injecting him with a vaccine. It's incomprehensible, the, the lack of consistency in, in these policies. So uh, it's, it's horrifying. Like I said, my initial reaction was was shock, surprise. By the end of the debate, I was horrified how callous, how contemptuous, Um, This prime minister is towards democracy and to to deliberately utilize a tool, a piece of legislation that is there for national security purposes to vilify Canadian protesters is unacceptable. And again, I take exception with many in the mainstream media who did not call this out as they should have. Thank God for social platforms and social media platforms and the digital world we live in, um, because uh, this crime might have been a lot worse than it already is. And I keep making the argument in the Senate and I make it wherever I speak. Can imagine if the left in this country one day were facing a prime minister who was not of their choice and their preference? deciding to use the emergency act because indigenous groups were shutting down railway infrastructure or environmentalists were protesting on Wellington Avenue, peaceful protests. What would be the outcry then by the left and the mainstream media? If one day another prime minister decides to use the emergency act to shut down some of these issues or pro uh, pro-choice activists who are deciding to close down a bridge or protest in front of a hospital or in front of a parliament. So, it, again, the navel-gazing, the the hypocrisy and the posturing and the mythology that the liberal government, Trudeau himself, with the aid of the left-wing mainstream media, uh, perpetuate. Is mind numbing. So I, I, you know, I go on and on on these no, issues. No, no,
0: I'm passionate I'm glad about you were it. able David. to share that because you're you've been a parliamentarian for a long time. You've seen this. You've you've been engaged in the political process. And you would you say you've never seen anything like this before? Like this was unprecedented, right?
1: Yeah, and and I hope we never see it again. And to see colleagues in the Senate who are who would be standing on their feet to justify the the unjustifiable just because they were appointed by the prime minister who was doing the unjustifiable was even more horrifying. Because so at the end of the day uh I like many Canadians believe that the Senate has to become an elected parliamentary body. I mean uh, in 2022 it it's it's completely makes no sense. Of course there's constitutional challenges and difficulties, but in the meantime we have a system that we have in place and appointed senators are summoned there to defend the Constitution of Canada. That's our primary role, to defend our regions, be voices for our regions that we represent, and defend the Constitution and the princip- parliamentary principles or Westminster parliamentary principles in holding government to account. And the number of true appointed senators who chose to defend uh, the, the indefensible uh, in order to, I guess, uh, not upset their master who appointed it to, appointed them to the chamber. That in itself is very concerning because uh, it, it brings it calls into question if these colleagues of mine are genuinely fit for the task they have.
2: Mm. I have a couple questions around this. Um, is it your belief or anticipation that Mr. Trudeau chose to, under his own whim? cancel the Emergencies Act because it was likely to not clear the Senate? That's a speculation that I hear tossed around a whole lot. And then if you could, that's, that's question number one. And then question number two is if you could clarify, and I ask this out of um, ignorance, do, does it not have to pass through the House and the Senate for it to be validated, to be used? Or is because it is an emergency measure, as soon as he kind of calls it, calls it up, it is ready to be used. Because from the citizen's perspective, it hadn't cleared the Senate yet. He was already using those powers. And that confuses me. So could you clear clear that up for us?
1: Let's be clear: the Emergency Measures Act does not require approval from Parliament. It is a decision that's made by the Prime Minister and the government, like as we say, the cabinet. So it's a cabinet decision and it is not to be used lightly. It is a bill that makes it clear that there's a national emergency, that the government and our institutions are at risk. We've seen now the public uh, review, the public commission on this. There is no inkling of evidence whatsoever that our democracy and our governments were under risk. It was, it was manufactured and exaggerated. Now, there is an element of it where it requires eventual approval from the House of Commons and the Senate. It's more of a review process while the act is, is being implemented. And again, we saw in the House of Commons, uh, the liberal seals fall into line with support of the left, of the socialists, the liberal socialist coalition the only voices of common sense were were the conservatives. Uh, And imagine even the Bloc Québécois on this issue were were raising concerns. Um, And in the Senate, there was no doubt in my mind, I think Mr. Trudeau would have carried the day in the Senate when it came to winning the vote. The problem for Mr. Trudeau is in the current Senate, he has the vast majority of appointed senators in it. And there were, in all fairness, there were some Trudeau-appointed senators that did exercise their constitutional responsibilities effectively. Senator Dalfour from Quebec was one of them, uh, a longtime supporter of this government when you look at his voting record, but stood up with courage that day to the prime minister and said, this is completely unacceptable. There were a handful of them. And the truth of the matter is, I believe what Mr. Trudeau saw was going to come down in the vote in the Senate, in a Senate where he has three quarters of those senators in his back pocket, a close vote. So I think even if he would have won that vote, let's say for argument's sake, there would have been a a bunch of abstentions and the vote would have come down, let's say, to (laughs) 40-30 or 42-35 or something of that nature it would have been as embarrassing as having lost the vote. And that's why I believe within a couple of hours of us having the vote, he saw the way the debate was going. I think he was surprised uh, at the five or six or seven of his appointees, and they deserve credit for having the courage to get up and say to the government, look, we've, we've, we've told the line, we've been good appointments for you, Prime Minister, but in this particular instance, you've gone too far. And that's really our role. We have a tremendous privilege of senators being appointed parliamentarians, like I said to speak on behalf of our regions, but we also have a constitutional responsibility. And I keep saying this, I might be appointed, but I have fundamentally a responsibility to the citizens, the taxpayers, the people I feel incumbent to speak for when I get on my feet in the chamber. So uh, Zach, to your question, yes, there's a lot of speculation that he took this decision because what was going on in the Senate. To clarify, I don't believe there was ever a risk of him losing the vote, but the fact that it was going to be close would have been embarrassing for him and difficult to justify. Uh, That's why I keep saying to Trudeau-appointed senators who make up the majority right now, I said, when you believe fundamentally in something on principle, express it yourself, because that's your job, to stand up against the government as the last check and balance. We in opposition, we articulate Right now, as an opposition uh, caucus, but the the weight of a government-appointed senator weighs even more. It's even more significant, right? I mean, everybody knows Senator Husek is a conservative, so Trudeau will brush it off and say, "Well, it's that you know those those radical tinfoil, uh, you know, uh, unhinged." right-wing extremists, radicals, whatever, racist, white supremacists, you know, he'll give us every single that it's get under the sun and mainstream media will uh, will accommodate him as usual. So when you have a bunch of left-wing, trudeau aspiring uh, you know, disciples getting up during that debate and saying, this is ludicrous, it just reiterates, Zach, how ludicrous it was.
0: Mm, that's, that's a very good explanation I think it leads really well into kind of the final topic of discussion we really wanted to get your opinion on which is he's now it seems this Liberal government is trying to silence people who disagree with them and they're doing it through an act of parliament that is utter censorship it's it's literally Facebook has has clearly said that they will not share any Canadian media alternative or mainstream on their platform if this bill passes, you know a lot about this bill. Can you share with us what is going on? Like this seems like Orwellian, it seems dystopian. It it doesn't feel real that our government would, would, (laughs) a government of a free country would so silence any opposition.
1: Yeah, look, uh, there's two bills currently. There's bill C-11, which the government claims is the um, reform of the Canadian Broadcasting Act. Uh, and they will argue that they want to basically create an even playing field between the new digital world and mainstream media and traditional broadcasters and what have you. Um, when you read the bill in de- detail, uh, you recognize that that's the furthest thing from the truth. What they really want to do is take the model, the long historic model we've had of broad- traditional broadcasting, uh, which the Canadian Broadcasting Act was designed to support those particular platforms which is i call it the horse and buggy from the 1950s and 60s uh, where canadians had no choice they were two three broadcasters now there's you know three and a half major broadcasters in the country Um, and what they want to do is take the horse and buggy and and take modern day digital broadcasters, and that's what they are, when you're a streamer, uh, and you, you look at all these modern platforms that I have just become accustomed to, like uh, Twitter, and Facebook, and and all these platforms, and TikTok, uh, and they want to be, and I call them a Ferrari. These are platforms that are giving us information quickly, are al- allowing people like Zach, David, and Leo to, 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 to broadcast to the world without any interference from gatekeepers, no interference from laws, no interference from governments and politicians with their agenda, just Canadians who can express themselves and we can have an open debate and we can say freely what we choose and what we choose to say can be freely challenged by others. So what is wrong with that? I think that's the most equal playing field. So what the government wants to do with C11 and C18 is take the Ferraris, the Lamborghinis, these modern day platforms and take the horse and buggy the traditional broadcaster, CBC, CTV, and others, Quebec or and create an equal playing field. So they want the horse and buggy to get a four-football field length lead and start a race of 10 yards. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there might be an outside chance the horse and buggy will have like a photo finish with the Lamborghinis and the Ferraris. Of course, the truth of the matter is they can try to pass all the laws in the world. Uh, uh, they can try to justify the unjustifiable. The pro- problem with today's broadcasters, traditional broadcasters, is their model. And we'll take the CBC as an example. We're spending $1.4 billion of taxpayers' money. Let's be clear. I love when the socialists and the liberal socialists say that it's it's you know public funds. There's no such thing as public funds. It's a public fund. It's taxpayers' funds. And not everybody in the public pays taxes. So let's be clear about that as well. So at the end, of you're taking $1.4 billion, you're putting it into an organization that clearly Canadians are not watching. Look at the ratings. No one is watching any longer the CBC. But there's some gatekeeper in Ottawa that took our money and they've decided to put it into the CBC for a bunch of make-work projects in order to justify, again, Certain messaging, which, of course, the CBC and the Radio Canada are all too happy to justify because whoever talks against their master and who the person that butters their bread. So they're taking our money. They're injecting it into traditional broadcasters. In the meantime, the only growth industry in broadcasting is in digital modern day platforms where Canadians are going to in the millions. If you look at The weekend, if you look at Justin Bieber's of this world, this is Canadian content, Canadian culture right? Do they look like they need protecting? Where were they discovered? They were discovered on YouTube. They weren't discovered on some CBC show or some CTV show. So at the end of the day, once again, this government using C11, C18, they're trying to protect their monopoly, protect their friends, uh, continue to prop them up. And in essence, what the bill is trying to do is manipulate logarithms and force modern day broadcasters to show Things to Canadians, Canadians choose not to watch. Where today, when we Google, when we go on Facebook, when we go on Twitter, those manipulations of log algorithms are used in order to show us and put up at the top things that we want to watch, right? When you Google a particular item, you notice that a few days later, the things that come into your thread are things you're interested in. Well. That's the kind of stuff Mr. Trudeau and the Liberal government are not interested in supporting. They don't like freedom of speech. They don't like freedom of thought. They like to be able to say one thing and do another. And and I know Bill C-11 and C-18 are a little bit complicated to explain. And that's why it's been taking some time for us to get a lot of traction. And again, young bloggers... Young streamers, young people that are on all these platforms selling their products, expressing their ideas, uh, they're starting to wake up and realize, wait a second, I have a government that's trying to um, create parameters for me not to be free to continue to express myself and do the things that all these young Canadian people have been doing. They they, they want to pass everybody through the CRTC to get approvals. They want to get approvals from the CEOs of CBC. They want to get approvals from the CEOs of Bell Canada to say and read and post and do things we want to do. Again, horrifying stuff when you think about it.
2: So if these bills were to pass, how Exactly, would that change how the average citizen interacts with the internet world and and what they're able to find online? Because I think Very that's the important—that's the important thing to bring home here. How yeah. how is it going to change what we experience today?
1: Well, Bill C. Eleven essentially is giving powers to the CRTC to basically set parameters to platforms in terms of algorithmic manipulation of what you see, of what is prioritized in your feed and what isn't, for example. The CRTC has been given by C11 the power to determine what's Canadian content and what isn't Canadian content. So somebody who is posting videos of an Aboriginal digital content uh, producer um, in rural Canada, that's producing videos of any sort and is posting them right now on YouTube and all these other platforms, if the CRTC determines what that Canadian indigenous person is posting is not Canadian enough, they are going to essentially force the platform provider to manipulate the algorithm so that particular product from that digital producer doesn't get as many hits as we say as he would normally get. That's really it in a nutshell. And they will push up and prioritize certain products that they think fits in within their definition. and And my problem historically with all that, and I keep using this example. Let's take a Handmaid's Tale. A Handmaid's Tale is a Canadian story by a very famous Canadian author. It's a show right. It's it's a show right now that's being filmed in Canada, by Canadian actors, by Canadian producers. The overwhelming majority of people who are producing, directing, acting, who wrote the script are Canadians, Canadian story. But because the investor and the owner of the property of the product comes from California, it's not considered Canadian content. Mm. Really? Absolutely. Ludicrous kind of stuff we're talking about here. So, we are busting our, our our butts in this country to get foreign investment in our energy sector, in our arts and culture. At the end of the day, we have seen through the study that I did with our Senate Committee on Communications and Transportation on Bill C-11, modern day content provider, the Netflix of this world, the Disney Pluses of this world, uh, the Googles of this world have been the biggest investors in Canada. In Canadian arts and and, and culture and so on and so forth, there are more writers, more producers, more films being shot in Quebec, in Ontario, in rural Canada than ever before. Look at the industry growth in Toronto, in our Canadian film industry, for example. Why? Because these are... Top dollars coming. I don't care if the money's the investor who believes in our marketplace here comes from California or Paris or London. On the contrary, I want them to be foreign dollars coming in here, creating jobs. No, but this government—they want us to go through the Telefilm Board. They want to continue to have taxpayers' money, and it's and it's all comes down to they want to decide through the CRTC through Heritage Canada. They want to decide what is. Canadian enough, acceptable enough.
2: And there exactly, there exactly in lies the biggest problem of this whole argument. Because at any moment, they could decide that a content creator who doesn't subscribe to their particular ideology on any topic they see fit, they could decide that that content creator is not creating a Canadian enough message. And they use that tool then to deplatform and to silence and to censor those Canadians who have a different opinion than the one that they are trying to project. And that is I think the biggest danger in this bill to our country. Would you agree?
1: That's danger number 1 and danger number 2 which is the the fallout of all that is that currently we have hundreds of thousands of Canadian content producers in this country. And and they're they're making a living they have for the first time, what these platforms, Zach, have given Canadian Canadians, I won't even say musicians and, and culture producers and video producers. They've given them a springboard to export Canadian culture and Canadiana to the world. I was struck how many indigenous digital um, content producers came before my committee and the message to the government was, leave us alone. For the first time, I don't have to go beg somebody at CBC or or, or CTV or Telefilm Canada to that my, my product is good enough. I post it free of charge, and I get a million views. And then they transform that into making a living. And then these Canadian streamers, not only exactly do they make a living, they pay taxes in Canada. The government benefits. And to your point. You're, you're 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 censoring them. You're, you're going to use the CRTC through Bill C 11, so Justin Trudeau can censor them. But of course, the, the the fallout of all this is what Trudeau loves to do. And and again, I'm starting to believe is it just a a a, a um, an end result of their philosophy, or is it deliberate? They're they're hurting our economy they're hurting the infl- the flow of cash which they so desperately need because this government is like a bunch of crackheads who need crack and they need money to keep to keep spending you know spending in their frivolous overkill program so you're absolutely right number 1 the danger of all this is censorship in itself but the the cause the result of this will also be a huge impact because at some point, these content providers are gonna, these platforms are gonna say, listen, it just doesn't pay to do business in Canada, which, because by the way, there's no other country in the world that has anything close to C11, none. Everybody's been talking about censoring uh, the digital world and and the internet. They've been trying for years. This country, and, and there's been absolutely no common sense argument to why we should. This government, of course, because they're devoid of any common sense, figure well, we're going to do it anyways. Because I believe the traditional broadcasters who are dying a slow, painful death are, are are doing everything in their power to stymie the growth of this platform, which I call it the springboard for free speech and freedom of expression.
2: Mm. Yeah, um, that's really good. That's a that's a fantastic explanation. Um, you said something very interesting. Do you, and I, I toss this around in my head all the time. Do you, do you actually ever wonder what Trudeau's end goal in all of this madness is? Um, and I try to catch myself between engaging with someone that I disagree with. You know, I, I consider myself a conservative. He's a liberal. We are not going to agree on things, but some of the moves that his, office makes just to me seems so unbelievably absurd and unhelpful do you do you get to speculate what he's up to is that something that goes through your head
1: it's a good question zach because again those of us that participate in the political discourse we do it because we're conservatives or we're liberals or we're uh, to the left or to the right of the spectrum. And I think in a democracy you need to have an open and frank discussion and debate uh, issue by issue in order to arrive to the best possible conclusion in the best interest of the country. And I never in any disparaging way believe that the objectives and the intentions of all my colleagues in the Senate, in the House of Commons, in all political parties are noble in the sense that we want to build a better Canada. We just come from it from a different point of view. And I think all point of views need to be expressed, dissected, uh, and of course, the outcome varies from issue to issue. That's why I said for me, you know, it, it, sometimes we in the right get a, get an issue right, and sometimes those on the left get an issue right. But your question really hits the nail on the head. With this Trudeau government, I've come to the realization over the last couple of years, it's about the pursuit of uh, exploiting power and exploiting his narcissism. It's all about Justin Trudeau. Look, I cannot recall in my lifetime in this country where the three most senior ministers of this government have either been fired because they spoke out in holding the prime minister publicly to account for doing something terribly egregious, or, um, you know, uh, has questioned publicly the Prime Minister's overall vision and intention. And I'm talking about former Finance Minister Bill Morna. I'm talking about former Justice Minister Jody uh, Wilson-Raybould. I'm talking about former Health Minister, National Health Minister, uh, Minister Philpott. He lost three ministers. All three ministers who, when you read between the lines, and some you don't have to read between the lines, they're they're a little bit more open about it. But all three, have made it clear that they don't have confidence in this prime minister or his policies. And one actually went, the minister of justice, as far as to say, in her mind, this prime minister broke the law. So I will agree, disagree with former prime ministers Chrétien, prime minister Trudeau, Prime Minister Mulroney and even Prime Minister Harper on certain issues but I've never ever seen a prime minister where three of the most senior cabinet ministers uh, have called him out for egregious behavior and one the former minister of justice has made it clear in her mind his office and the prime minister were breaking the law but again should it be a shock to us because we have a prime minister again who keeps setting records for the wrong reasons he broke the law twice, according to the ethics officer of Parliament. And by the way, I highlight a lot of Canadians in the media have this misconception that the ethics officer's report in finding Prime Minister Trudeau guilty of breaking the law twice—they they, muddle the waters by keep saying it's 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 a, it's a an ethics violation. No, it's not an ethics code. It's the law. Hmm. The Prime Minister Trudeau of breaking the law. The the code in the House of Commons is not an ethics code. It's an ethics law that he broke and had no consequences. And we saw it recently uh, again when there was a a cabinet minister who gave out a contract to a friend. And what does the the cabinet minister say? Well, I'm sorry. It's terrible that it happened and it will never happen again. Again, this prime minister has thrown... Cabinet responsibility and accountability out the door. Those of us that are fans of our Westminster parliamentary system, and I am a huge fan, but only when it works. When a minister is found guilty of doing something they're not supposed to do, like issuing a contract to a friend without a public tender, up until the Trudeau government, there were consequences. Mr. Harper accepted a resignation from a minister because she accepted to expense a $16 glass of orange juice and a hotel room that, in his opinion as prime minister and the media made such a fuss about, cost a few hundred dollars more than market value. Yet the prime minister goes to a summit in London, spends $6,700 a night on a suite that usually goes for 3000 bucks, and nobody questions it. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Okay, so... And, uh- to to kind of to kind of rein it all in, it seems as though whether it is through his own incompetence or narcissism or whatever else might be at play, we have someone at the head of the country who doesn't necessarily have the country's best intentions at the forefront of his thought. And that brings us back to kind of the beginning of the conversation and where Mr. Polyev sits in all of this. What is your hope? for the next few years of Canada, and specifically for for Mr. Polyev as he goes, you know, as he continues forward in opposition of Mr. Trudeau?
1: My hope is to bring Canada back to a governance where we respect our parliamentary institutions. We respect our Westminster parliamentary system, which is, I believe, the best in the world, where we have a prime minister who, when he speaks, he's clear, principle and ethical uh those of us that have seen pierre Polyev as a conservative member of parliament for now uh what is it close to 20 years has seen a consistency in his discourse on every major issue i've seen him go for 20 years i've had the privilege of calling him a colleague and a friend uh he never wavers. he has the courage to say things for what they are uh, I have never seen an opportunistic bone in his body, so I—that's uh, the reason why I support Pierre Polyev so unequivocally. Uh, that's why I believe we drew close to seven hundred thousand members. And as David said at the beginning of this show, uh, it is not just—it was not a regular leadership campaign. This is not about regular partisan politics. I believe Pierre Polyev represents the hopes and aspirations of a young generation of Canadians who feel left out, who feel betrayed by a government, and there has to be accountability. Our democracy at the end of the day is giving the opportunity to Canadian citizens to call those to the floor that they elected and remind them what they promised to do seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years ago. Uh, and currently that is not happening under Justin Trudeau. On the contrary, actually, it is happening on a regular basis where Canadians are reminding him that he has not delivered on what he's promised, quite the contrary, Uh, and the results have been quite catastrophic so far. Uh, But yet we see a couple of things, an unwillingness of this government to accept responsibility and accountability, unwillingness to change direction. On the contrary, we've seen the last few months they're doubling down uh, so what I, I, uh, what I'm hoping to see is that Pierre Polyev will continue to be Pierre Polyet, which I have no doubt that's who he is. And he is such a clear and concise communicator, both in English and in French, where I think, uh, the frustrations of Canadians will be answered. Look, he's not Moses. You know, he, he can't walk on water. Uh, but I think Canadians don't want any more a politician that promises pie in the sky and promises things that they can deliver. They want a politician, like I said, clear, accountable, responsible, and ready to work hard. And on on all three, four of those accounts, Pierre Polyev gets uh, an A plus.
0: Well, thank you, Senator, for taking the time to uh, explain to us and to the listeners uh, so much of this complicated context around what's going on in our country. I guess the final question that i would ask you for just a simple answer is do you think that canada's broken and if so what would be the the three policies besides of course electing uh pierre Polyev as prime minister what are the three policies you think need to be changed immediately to get us back on track
1: broken canada's past broken like i said i'm a proud canadian son of immigrants who came here in the 1950s um and my parents came here with such hope and aspiration for themselves and and uh, and for uh their son uh and they'll tell you they achieved each and every one of them Uh, what we need to do i guess in three you know three steps is number one get a government like i said that is accountable transparent responsible with a prime minister who who toes the line And Pierre Polyev is the person, without a doubt, that can provide those elements. The second thing we need to do is have that government uh, make sure that we go back to fundamental, responsible uh, fiscal principles, that the government doesn't spend money it doesn't have. And every time there's a new uh, project, a new program, a new spending, that there's a saving somewhere or that that is generated Uh, somewhere to justify the expense Uh, and the third thing and this is a a very personal thing for me is that canada returns back to our fundamental values and i know people think it's cliche but it isn't our western democracies have been created on freedom democracy and free enterprise those are the three things uh freedom and democracy are the foundation and the pillars upon a free economic market that allows for us to create wealth. And every single Canadian, we've come here. Some Canadians have been here six and seven generations. Others have been here one or two, others are new arrivals. We all come here with one aspiration, to create wealth and a better life for our children from the place we all came. Because Canadians have come from different parts of the world. And we come here together, we emulsify under these values and principles of freedom, freedom of religion, freedom of association, freedom of expression, Which leads to free enterprise, which means if you work hard, you follow the law, you prosper. That's what my parents believe. Didn't matter where you came from, as Pierre Polydev likes to say, it's where we're going together. And but unless there's fairness, unless there's freedom, unless there's respect of your institution and your laws, you can't build a better Canada 10, 20 years from now than the Canada we inherited.
0: Well, thank you, Senator. I really appreciated this. Zach, do you have any last thoughts?
2: Uh, I just want to thank you as well um, for the for the decades of uh, love that you've put into this country. Um, it encourages me to, you know, it, I, I think I think a lot of people can sometimes get discouraged when they're looking at politics these days because it feels like quite a mess. But it is encouraging to me to know that there is an individual with as much integrity as you seem to hold that sits in the Senate. And fights for Canadians, and so I want to thank you for your service and for what you do for this country. Because guys like me appreciate guys like you.
1: Well, thank you, Zach, and thank you, David. Well, guys like me appreciate guys like you because at the end of the day, uh, I do this, uh, and I ha- and I hold out hope because of of Canadians uh, who I talk to and meet on a day. You know, we're not alone. There's many. There's many like minded Canadians across the country. So let's not despair. Let's keep working hard.
0: Let's not stop the dialogue and uh, we'll get there. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The CAD Story. That's The CAD Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is.